If you have your Bibles, please open to 3 John. We've been going through this little mini-series after our series in the summer because, um, well, for one thing, it's because my doctrinal class require us to teach through this book. Uh, but also, I thought it was just a good opportunity because of how filled our uh, fall calendar is and things are going on on Fridays. There's a lot more events coming up, as you can see. Uh, so we thought that it would probably be better once we have a much more consistent Friday that we could go back into their series through the Gospel of Mark. But for now, this is going to be part two of our little three-part series in the book of Third John. And I'd like to read through this entire epistle, since it's a little short one, just to kind of give us a broader context of what this book is about. <laughs> Third John, the beloved... Oh, sorry, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. <coughs> that is how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake <coughs> of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and will, and will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Father God, help us this evening. After a long week of study and work, uh, we are tired, but Lord, may you sustain us and awaken our hearts and minds to your word and conform us to the image of your son. Thank you for this time that we have. In your son's name, amen. If you ever read a history book, I know most of us don't read anymore, but if you ever listen to a YouTube channel on, on history, and, and especially things pertaining to war, you'll find that allies and enemies are sometimes on the eye of the beholder. You are in country A and you're going against country B. You would think that all the people in country A are the allies and everyone in country B are the enemy. 
But if you look at things from the perspective of country B, you would think all their allies are actually, they're on the right side of history, and everyone else in country A are the people that are the enemy. And I think the reason why sometimes war can be seemingly gray in terms of who is right and wrong is because war oftentimes have different philosophical um, desires and they have different goals in mind and different agendas. And oftentimes, depending on where you stand on certain views, it may seem that you don't know which side is really right. And that's just the way the world is. Because the world sometimes they don't really have an objective standard of what right and wrong is. But for us as Christians, it's very clear when it comes to the enemies of the church. There are people that the Bible describes as false teachers or as wolves or as people that are deceivers. In fact, I remember when I was preaching through the book of Jude, they give us, Jude writes and gives a list of people and their description of what a enemy looks like. In Jude, 10, it said, but these men revile the things which they not understand and which they not know by instinct and like unreasoning animal. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain for, and for pay they have rushed headlong into Arrow Balaam and perished in the rebellion. Later on, he describes these false teachers as grumblers and finding faults, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly flattering people for sake of gaining an advantage. And Paul warns the church in Ephesus that there is going to be a time where false teacher is going to enter in to cause division, to cause problems in the church. Whether that is a moral issue or a theological one, there are going to be people that are going to try to divide the church. And the scripture speaks and warns against against these type of people. They're known as the enemies of the church for a reason, because at the core of what they're doing, they, they desire to rob God's glory and bring glory to themselves. The book of 3 John is a book about how we are to be hospitable. And you remember two weeks ago when we started this series, I said that 2 John and 3 John are really two halves of the same coin, or two sides of the same coin. And then 2 John, there's warning people against false teachers that are trying to get into the church. That if they teach a different gospel, that you're supposed to keep them away from the church. That you're not even allowed to uh, welcome them into the, into the body of Christ because of how dangerous they can be. While 3 John does the opposite. Where says, if these people are genuine believers, then you need to care for them. You need to be hospitable, and you need to love them. Two weeks ago, we were introduced to this individual, Gaius, and he was known as just this, this faithful saint, this person that seemed to need some sort of encouragement because of what's going on in the church that he was at. There's been friction and tension and division going on, and John, in the beginning, the first eight verses, is trying to encourage him, saying that, no, you are actually walking in a manner that's worthy of our, God, of, of our Lord. And the way that you treat people, you magnify the love of God. When we get to this portion of the letter tonight, this is, I think, the reason why he wrote this letter. Because John wants to confront this individual named Diotrephes. 
Diotrephes seems to be this guy that's just causing problems. He is kicking people out of the church. He's elevating himself. He's just making things difficult and possibly misrepresenting Christ. And Gaius doesn't know what to do. So I think this letter is given to Demetrius for Gaius to speak about this individual named Diotrephes. Now, it's easy for us, and, and when we listen to a message, or any message, really, to think, I know this sermon is perfect for someone. I know I have someone in mind I can just give this sermon to. And it's really easy to have in our mind's eye a picture of someone, especially when we're going to go through this little character study of diatrophies. And that's an easy thing to do, but I think instead of focusing on that, I want you to use your eyes and look at your own self and understand that each and every single one of us can be the enemy of the church. If we leave our spiritual life unguarded, if we're not mindful in the way that we think about the church, it can be very easy for us to be like a Diotrephes. So here are the markers of those that are the enemies of the church. If you want to be, in a lot of ways, a thorn in the flesh, or the one that in Galatians grabs as someone that devours other people, or these individuals that just cause so much pain to the church, these are some of the attributes that you need to have. There's four of them that we're going to look at this evening. First is that they seek to be first. They want to strive for preeminence. Look at verse 9. I wrote something to the church by Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. You notice that this name Diotrephes comes up, and it's really fascinating when you just look at the etymology of his name because it means reared by Zeus, which implies that this person is a Gentile. He is someone that was not Jewish in background, and at some point he heard the gospel and became a believer. But the name Diotrephes is is unique not only because of what it means, but also the fact that usually this name is given to those that are in the elites of society. These are people that are in the upper echelons, the people that are, you know, the social elites. That's what Diotrephes is. And it, it could be because of his background that he feels entitled to run the church. Because of how he was raised, because of his background, he thinks of himself in a certain way that, that makes him think that he knows how to run a church. It seems that this individual started off pretty well. I mean, he's part of the church, and it seems like he has a level of influence. Remember, back then, the churches were homes, and he seemed to have his own little church in his own home. He must be wealthy enough to be able to do that. And he was a faithful servant until this letter. It says that he is someone that loves to be first. And this word love, loves in English, it just seems like it just happens once. But this is actually not the case. This is this ongoing thing. It's constant. He just loves to be first, not just for a season, but it's just the regular part of his life. The things that he thinks about, the things that he dwells on, what, what defines him, the things that he loves and craves is preeminence. He wants to be first in everything. He isn't one of those leaders that say, oh, well, there's a need, and I'm just going to meet that need, and then I'll do my best and fix it, and then kind of leave it at that. 
No, he's someone that, that loves this attention, and once the needs are met, he gets puffed up. He thinks of himself as some sort of savior to this church. He thinks of himself as first. He thinks of himself as important. And Diotrephes loves this preeminence. There's no time in which he wants to step down. He wants to continue to be the leader of this church. This person loves power, and he loves, to, and he loves it so much that he will do whatever it takes to stay in control. He probably did see a need. Think about the early church. You know, they didn't have that much social um, credit. You know, the people did not think highly of Christians. So he was able to meet a need in the church by opening up his home. And because of his pride, he thinks he's important, so important that he's causing fights within the context of the church. This person loves power. He loves being in control. And he believes that he is a leader. Of course, the ironic thing about that is that one of the qualifications of a leader is hospitality, yet this person fails to do so. The natural result of those that want to be first is that they're blind to the fact that they themselves are actually not qualified to be leaders. And this should be a warning for all of us. It's easy for us, especially in our type of circle, to elevate skill, to elevate talent, and, that, and those things are very alluring. Those things are really attractive. But what should make a godly leader is not their effectiveness in ministry, but rather their godly character. The thing that defines them must not be their pragmatic skills or how energetic they are and how charismatic they can be, but rather it's their godly character. Diotrephes was a leader in the church, even though he did not qualify to be a leader. And that is a warning for all of us, is it not? Because one of the greatest virtues is humility. We need to be humble, especially if you have influence. The Atrophies has a level of influence that he was able to kick people out of the church. He wanted to be first, and he kept that position. Again, think about the early church. They were meeting in homes. So it's possible that there were other homes nearby that Diotrephes was able to influence, say, hey, if this Christian comes to your house, you need to kick them out as well. You need to follow my lead because I am the one that's supposed to lead not just a church that is in his own home, but other churches as well. And you'll notice this word first. It's a who loves to be first among them. This word first is fascinating because it's only used twice in the entire New Testament. One time here, and the other time is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, which Paul writes, he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, will come to have first place in everything. So I do believe that the Holy Spirit that inspired both of these writers to use this particular word to describe that Diotrephes himself believes that he is the head of the church. The word that is supposed to be reserved for Jesus Christ. This individual wants to usurp Christ. He sees himself as someone that's not equal to Christ, but someone that actually, he actually believes that he's the head of the church himself. He seeks that independence from John and Gaius or Gaius. But you know, the worst that he seeks that 
separation from Christ because he thinks that he's ahead of the church. Again, this can be our desire as well. When we look at our lives, well, why do you even do the ministry that you are doing? Sometimes in the beginning, in our young faith, or when we're entering into church, we can start off on the right foot. We can be very humble. We can do whatever other people ask. We can see the needs of the church and meet them very quickly. But you need to be very watchful of your own hearts because, you know, we people don't really notice that you have that, those ambition until you start causing problems in the church. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. At some point, he was a faithful saint until he grows into prominence. In the heart of hearts, the reason why he did everything, the reason why he hosted these people to begin with, was because he wanted power. And for us, we need to evaluate our own hearts. Why do you do what you do at the church? Is it to gain notoriety? Do you come to church to serve, not because you're doing it for the glory of God, being empowered by the Spirit, but are you doing it with these evil motives so that you can have some sort of platform or some sort of leadership role because you feel that that's what you need in life? If that's you, then you do need to check your own heart and repent. Not only that, but the enemy of the church is someone, not only is he someone that strives to be first, but he is someone that is not teachable. He is not teachable. At the end of verse 9, it says, he does not accept what we say. And you'll notice that there's this beginning part of verse 9 as well. It says, I, I wrote something to the church. And whatever it was, Diotrephes does not accept them. And it's very interesting because it was implied here that John probably confronted Diotrephes in another letter. He's telling them, what you're doing, what we've heard of what you're doing, this is not right. You're clearly doing something that's a violation of what God expects of you. And Diotrephes, reading this, probably felt, defense, felt offended and became defensive and got rid of this letter. We don't know what this letter is. But the result is very clear, and that is that he does not accept what the apostle is saying. This word does not accept is this idea of like he has nothing to do with, the, with John. He wants nothing, he, has no, he wants no part in what John is saying. And you may look at this and wonder, how can Diotrephes be so dense? How can he be so arrogant to not even take lessons and, and words from the apostle John? I mean, John is the last apostle here. He's in his 90s. He's seen Jesus in his ministry. He's seen him uh, it go into the cross and then go into the tomb and come out of it. He's, seen, he's walked with Jesus. If there's anyone that has authority, apostolic authority, is John. And yet this guy here says, no, I'm not going to listen to this apostle John because I know what's best. This guy is completely unteachable in Proverbs Chapter 12 calls that foolishness. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Diotrephes is a fool. He wanted to be preeminent. He wanted to be first. And, he <coughs> and the natural result is that he is unteachable. Back in World War I, 
uh, there was a battle called the Battle of, of Som, it's S-O-M-M-E, Som or Som, and it was known as one of the worst battles that the British people have engaged. And part of that reason was because a third of their army was completely wiped out, whether it's because of um, you know, injuries or just you know, being killed. They're trying to figure out why did this happen? How can this be? At the time, the, the, you know, the British people were known for their trench warfare. World War I, at that point, World War I, those were already 60 years of experience. How can they fail so poor? How can they fail so bad? Because historians said that those group of individuals, before this one battle, there were a whole bunch of these young British soldiers that came from what they call just high society. There was time for war, so they just gather all the men that they can. These guys would call themselves gentlemen. Ha ha, I cannot, uh, I, 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 you know, they, they lived a certain way. And in their mentality, it's because they thought they're gentlemen, that they're not allowed to take any instruction from anyone. They thought, you can't tell me what to do. I know who I am. And I know this whole war thing is gross, it's yucky. And they don't realize that the people that are trying to train them or try, for, or, or try to warn them of something that they need in time of war. These soldiers were known as very unteachable because of their own arrogance and pride. And not only did they have commanders and people over them that had so much experience and knowledge about warfare, particularly trench warfare, but they even had the technology that was what gives them an advantage. Because at that time, the machine gun was made. And they thought, okay, when we're going to war against these Germans, this is how you use this device to just mow down the enemies. And when the battle came, the soldiers, these British soldiers, were completely lost. All of their, they became fearful. They didn't know what to do. When they were gotten the machine gun, they didn't know how to operate it. And they don't realize that their pride made them a, a liability to themselves and other people around them. And this is what Diotrephes is like. Because of his own arrogance, because of his own pride, because, of his, because he's unteachable, he doesn't realize that he's hurting himself and other people in his life. An unteachable fellow in the church is extremely dangerous because they do not see that they are a liability to their own soul and to the people around them. And usually, people get into leadership position because at one point, they are teachable. But because of their own pride, because of their own sinful arrogance, they chose not to learn anymore. They become enemies of the church because they don't want change. They think change will go against their own lifestyle or their own pedestal. So they choose not to listen. And this is a fa it's just amazing to see that someone like Diotrephes, again, it does, it's, it's, it's unknown whether or not John shared the gospel with him and he got saved through it, but it doesn't matter because this guy here chose to reject the teaching of the apostle. Again, look at your own heart. Are you a teachable person? If someone is confronting you on your sins, you already have your mind like almost like a Google engine of answers and excuses of why you don't need to do a certain thing? Do you always have some sort of answer to criticism or some sort of excuse when people are trying to correct you? Think of the last time that you were corrected and confronted by someone. What was your natural inclination? Now, I understand all of us have some pride in us where we feel attacked when people confront us because of our sin. 
but you need to be humble knowing that God is the one that opposes the proud but give grace to those that are humbled. The enemy of the church is not just someone that seeks pre- preeminence or seeks to be first and also not just someone that is unteachable but third, he is a slanderer. The enemy of the church begins by wanting to be preeminent then he goes to the point where he does not accept any teaching or correction, and then he slanders people. Look at verse 10. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. It is the natural result for someone like Diotrephes to end up being wanting to be first, not being teachable, and then attacking those that actually are in leadership. This is, again, the natural progression. It's, it's natural because John needed to let him know this is what God expects of you, and then there's Diotrephe saying, no, that's not right. I'm going to carve my own way. I know what is right, and I'm going to go and do my own thing. Diotrephes then says here, again, to accuse, unjustly accuse, them, us meaning the John and probably some of the other leaders, with wicked words. This word accusing in this form is only used here in the entire New Testament. And the point is that he is actually accusing them with these wicked words. And wicked is the same word that John used in 1 John to describe the actions of Cain. In 1 John chapter 3, Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of evil, that's the same word here, evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Later on, that same word appears in 1 John chapter 5. It says that in uh, chapter 5, verse 18, we know that no one is born of God's sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The implication is that Diotrephes, he's accusing these apostles of devilish deeds. The things that he thinks the apostles are doing, he's spreading that rumor around these churches and accusing the apostles of doing things that are essentially of the devil. Ambition leads to accusation or action that seeks to annihilate all. And that's what Diotrephes is doing. You know, in the political realm, we, we're familiar with, well, we don't use this word anymore. It's the word mudslinging. It's, it's, a, it's an old word. I think nowadays we just call it Twitter or cable news, right? Like, if you watch those things or you read tw- like the Twitter feeds, especially when they're talking about political people, it's, it's never really the idea that they're attacking. They're always trying to conjure up something about the character and of the other person, just, and just slander them, just make things up. They'll accuse them. They'll just say all these mean things. And the reason why people do that, the reason why in the political world there's so much mudslinging going on is because they don't want to engage the idea. So what they have to do is just make a distraction, some sort of smoke screen so that people don't look at the politics, don't look at the ideas or the politics or the rules or whatever, but rather they look at the person and think of all of these things that may or may not be true. And this is what Diotrephes is doing when he's unjustly accusing the Apostle John and probably Gaius as well, that he's trying to make something about them that isn't true. But why would Diotrephes do something like this? What is the point? What is the gain from all of this? 
is because Diotrephes understands that his, God, his character is not godly. So the only way that you can get to, to kind of destroy your opponents is to come up with some sort of distraction, some sort of smokescreen, something that makes them not see the Apostle John as not credible. And we see this even in the, in the life of the Apostle John in First and Second Corinthians. You know, all the people in Corinth, there's those group of people that are accusing Paul for the same thing. And the reason why they want to do that is that if they could get rid of Paul, then they don't have to listen to his teaching. And that's what Diotrephes is doing here with the Apostle John. He's accusing them. He's, he's finding ways to, uh, for people to just distrust them just a little bit so that Diotrephes can keep his position of power. Diotrephes sees the Apostle John as a threat. The enemy of the church is someone that rejects teachers, and they do so by slandering them. Diotrephes accuses the authority that's in their life because they believe that they are first. And again, looking at our own lives, this is one of those areas that can be very easy to fall into. It's very easy because we're prone to just slip of the tongue to say something that may not be true, but yet this should not be the case for us as believers. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give peace, it will give grace to those who hear it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self which is e with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. See, all of these verses, these two, and there's more as well as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, describes that the life of the Christian should not be that that slanders. And it puts into question, is Diotrephes a believer? Because how can a believer do such a thing? How can a believer seek to want to be first? How can a believer not be teachable? And how can a believer seek to accuse and slander those that are leaders in his life? Again, for us, we need to be mindful of our own tongue as well. Because there are things that can be said about those in leadership that you cannot take back. There are reputations that can be destroyed just by a misspoken sentence. Sowing seeds of slander is subtle, and it seeks to separate saints. Sowing subtle seeds of slander seeks to separate saints, which actually leads to our fourth point. Not only does the enemy of the church is someone that strives to be first and that he is unteachable, and also the fact that he's a slanderer, but fourth, this individual is very divisive. Our last point is that this person is very divisive. Look at the end of verse 10. 
and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Now, Diotrephes here is clearly splitting the church. He's literally choosing those that are on his side and people who agree with his thoughts, and he's putting them against the other people that are in the church, which is why I think this letter was written, because Gaius is probably hurt. He's probably one of those guys that Diotrephes kicked out. He's wondering, did I do something wrong? And John is writing this letter to assure Gaius that he is actually the one that's in the right, and Diotrephes is the one that's causing all this problem, and he's the one that's wrong. Diotrephes understood something. He, under <coughs> he understood that if you want to be in power, what you need to do is divide and conquer. In 1796, Napoleon had this mission in mind. He had this impossible, seemingly impossible mission. He wanted to take over Italy, but his army was only 37,000 people. In, the, in, the, in Italy, their army was, about, was over 50,000. 50, and Napoleon understood that there's no way that he can just march all his men up to, the, up to Italy and expect to win because there's a critical mass on the side of the Italians and all the, it's like, it's like for every one person on his side, Napoleon's French, and uh, he, for one of their soldiers, like four other guys that they need to fight. So they are at a disadvantage. But Napoleon was brilliant in the fact that he studied the map and he realizes, you know, we can't take them head on, but maybe we can just break our group down to a, a, a small size and we can maybe devour some of their small bases as well. So instead of going 37K against 57K or 50, 50, 50K, he decided, well, what if I just get 100 of my guys and just find the post where there's 50 of theirs? That gives us the advantage. And that's exactly what he did. He divided and conquered. He just slowly just found the small weak points and just destroyed them. And he, in the end, Napoleon won because of that. He was able to thin out the herd. And that is exactly what Diotrephes is doing. He sees these people that are doing what John wants, this love, this hospitality. He kicks them out of the church. He forbids them from doing the thing that God expects of them. Diotrephes needed to get rid of these people because these people, because he knows that if there's too many of them, he will be outnumbered and he will lose control and influence. So he made sure to get rid of the competition. Diotrephes made it very clear whose side he's on. It's not the side of the gospel. It's not the side of God. It's not the side of Jesus. He's on his own side, and he's gathered enough people to excommunicate people out of the church. Again, clearly, Diotrephes has some level of influence, and I don't think he's, I mean, he must be someone that's younger because the apostle John is like in his 90s. I don't think anyone older than 90 can actually overthrow these churches here. So he must be younger than the Apostle John, but still had enough power and, and by, you know, with people that is able to do whatever he, he's able to influence people to do whatever he wants. It's impossible for one individual to cause so much damage to the church on their own. He needed allies, and he needed to make sure that those allies stick with him while he gets rid of certain people. Daughtry was clearly heavy-handed. He was kicking people out of the church. And before John arrived, people may actually think, maybe this is what Christianity is like. Maybe Christianity is this 
strong-handedness, this heavy-handedness. In fact, one commentator was trying to figure out why would Diotrephes do this? And he speculates that one possible explanation why he's kicking people out is because Diotrephes does not like this idea of missionaries going from place to place, but rather he wants everyone to be in this one central location, this one church, which goes against what Jesus commands with the Great Commission. Jesus tells them to go out and make disciples of all nations, and Diotrephes said, no, let's just stay here. Let's just gather everyone here. I want to build my empire here. He has a tremendous amount of selfish ambition. Again, it says that he forbids those to do so, meaning he is able to gain enough followers to live like him, which is why in verse 11 it says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, but the one who does evil has not seen God. And we'll look at this verse more in detail next week, but understand that John sees what Diotrephes is doing. He considers his actions as evil. But how does this happen? Sinful ambition. His pride that caused him to want to be first, to not be teachable, to slander people, will eventually get him to divide those in the church. Pride is, again, what led Satan to fall. Pride, it was was Satan's pride that was able to even gather some of the fallen angels with him. So it's no surprise that this is Diotrephes acting wickedly, acting like the devil. And the saddest thing about all this it's not even so much that people were kicked out of the church, though that is sad, um, but the greatest sadness from all of this as you're reading this is that the gospel was hindered. The glory of God is tainted. Because of this person's selfish ambition, God is robbed of his glory. He brought shame and reproach to the name of the Lord, and Diotrephes kicked these people out, and anyone that was a threat to him, he kicked them out and removed them as well. Again, this can be our danger as well. Because it's very easy for us to just get rid of those or just cause division in the church when we don't get what we want. We can, out of our own sinful pride and our own arrogance, seek to divide those in the church. And I don't think there's any other, I mean, one of the most common things that you see in the New Testament epistles is that there needs to be unity in the gospel, that the church is united with one another. So much of the New Testament epistle is written to people falling into moral sin or or falling into bad theology, and Paul or any of the New Testament writers are trying to correct them so that there is unity in the church. Whenever there is someone that holds to a a different theological view or holds to a different moral standard, eventually they will split the church in half. Again, that is something that we need to be mindful of. What are the things, what are the things that we find our unity in? Is it a particular ministry style? Is it a particular way of preaching? Is it a particular way that we do fellowship? Those things are not wrong to try to figure out in and of itself, but when you see and elevate those things as more important than unity in the church, then you're creating basically problems and fractures and schism in the church. Divisive, being divisive is dangerous because it seeks to drive people to the dumps. At the end, and it's just so sad when you see this because Diotrephes is recorded as the guy that seeks to divide. He's someone that's just so proud and wanted to lead the church according to his own image. And it's, we have this in history. And I do hope 
that at some point when John confronted Diotrephes that he did repent. Now, there's a reason why I read through this entire epistle this week and two weeks ago, because I want you to see that there is nothing about this that is necessarily theological. You know, John isn't confronting a theological error here, which implies that if Diotrephes was here with us today, he would totally agree to our doctrinal statement. He would believe in five points of Calvinism. He will totally believe in our soteriology, our bibliology, and all the theologies. He would say, yes and amen, I agree to each and every single one of those points. How can I, where do I need to sign to be a member of this church? And that is the dangerous thing. Because you can have the right theology, but your life can be twisted. Having right theology does not mean that you're somehow immune to sin. Diotrephes is someone that is not confronted based on the, uh, what he knows about God. He chose to live a way that's contrary to Scripture, but it's not something that John is addressing. I think John understands that. That's why he's trying to confront him on his actions, because he realizes that there's something off about him, and he's trying to uh, fix this, and he hopes, and I believe, and I hope too as well, that Diotrephes does indeed repent. Pride leads one to one prestige and prominence, which would lead him to be pugnacious towards others. Again, this can be said about all of us, can it not? We can hold to all the right doctrines, but yet we can allow pride to make ourselves and elevate ourselves to the point where we become enemies of the church. Every single member of the body must see themselves as part of a greater whole that devotes their lives in worshiping the Lord. Because those that seek to be preeminent, like Diotrephes, in a lot of ways they are like a cancer to the church. They destroy everything in its path. This is why even in the book of Titus, the end of Titus chapter 3, there's a very stern warning to those that seek to cause division in the church. Titus chapter 3. Paul writes, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Which means that there is something unique here, that causing division is a unique kind of sin in the church. You can have a lot of moral sins in your life. And yet, there is a four-step church discipline thing that we see in Matthew 18. But if you're someone that deliberately chooses to cause division in the church, it's only two steps. And the first step was already taking place. It's in verse 9 that he wrote something. That's the first warning. And I think that the second warning, although we don't see it, is John going to confront him face-to-face. -face. Because I think if Diotrephes doesn't repent they were going to excommunicate him from the church. It's a warning for us about what pride can do in the context of the church. Pride demands that God is not submitted to, but rather it is you. Now, what if this is not you? You're hearing this, and you're like, oh, what? I'm not, I look at all four, I don't have any of these. That's good. Stay humble, and just remind yourself that you need to stay humble because 
God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Know that you might one day be called to lead and just stay humble, consistently just stay humble. Know that the reason why you are where you are is because God has, is because of God's grace. The reason why you can serve the way that you can serve is because of God's grace. Because the reason why you know what you know is because of God's grace. Everything about you is God's grace. Stay humble. What if there are, but what if there are those in the church that act like diatrophies? Then you need to do what John does and lovingly confront them. I believe just even looking at this letter, it was so different when you read like Galatians. Galatians is a lot of like heat in the, at least the first part. And here, it's just, he's just, he said that he didn't even, doesn't even want to write out those things, but he, rather, he always wanted to talk to them face to face. There's so much grace that John has because I think John understands grace. You need to confront these individuals and say, hey, I see this in your life and you're hoping that they would repent knowing the damage that they'll cause to themselves and the church at large. Or what if you look at these four and you realize, I am all four of these things. I see myself wanting to be in prominent positions with the hopes of ruling the people here at the church. Please understand that you need to repent, and there is grace as well. You might have harvested all of these sinful ambitions and desires to be number one, and God hates that. God hates those desires. And the reason why that is, because at the core of that ambition is to seek glory for yourself, and really you want worshipers to follow you, and know that God will have vengeance. And again, that's just looking at Diotrephes. I hope that he did come to saving faith, and I hope that he did repent. And I hope that is for you, if that's you. I'll end with this quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis in the book, Mere Christianity, describes pride in this way. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. May we guard ourselves from wanting to be first. May we guard ourselves from being unteachable. May we guard ourselves from being slanderers. And may we guard ourselves from causing divisions in the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we're thankful for your word and just the clarity that it has in pertaining to what is a threat and an enemy to the church. We know because of our own sinful flesh that we can be just as wicked as Diotrephes. And Lord, allow us to have a right a reflection of our own hearts, knowing that we can be prone to rob glory from you. Lord, may you keep us humble, knowing that we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Remind us of, the, of, our, of our humble state, that we are nothing but dust, but because of your grace, we are made, we are remade to have a new birth that one day will be glorified in, in paradise with you. All that we are is because of your grace. We deserve only the wrath of, it, of God. Help us keep our own ambitions in check. Allow us 
to seek to serve you and others with a pure heart, not for any selfish gain, not for anything, some worldly title, but we serve others because we love you, Lord. Be with us in your son's precious name.